Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Good, Bad, and Ugly of Business. I'm your host, Katrin Becker. On this podcast, we love to say that a smart person learns from his mistakes while a genius learns from others. So in that vein, in that spirit, we love to bring together people from all walks of life, all different areas of industry, nations, you name it. We've got business owners, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, authors, actors, everyone. And today's guest, is something that I'm personally very passionate about and very excited to talk to him about. His name is Eric Maisel, and he has authored more than 50 books. In addition to being an author, he's a mental health expert and creativity coach and has so much knowledge that we can all learn and grow from. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. I, I mean, of all of the things that come after your name to describe you, which one are you most proud of? Hmm. Oh, probably it was always author. Um, I, I grew up loving books and without knowing it, I think I was presumed that I would write books. So being able to have done all these books and have many of them published, uh, that's probably what I'm proudest of. On the other hand, <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I was born after world right after World War II, 1947. And in, in the Brooklyn neighborhood where I grew up, Italian Jewish neighborhood, the war was still on everybody's mind. We had concentration camp survivors, and it, it was the big event. Hmm. And from that event, I somehow took in the idea of resistance fighter, that to be a resistance fighter was maybe the most important thing to do in life, different from any kind of nameable profession like architect or writer or lawyer. But there was a there was a place, a necessary place in the world for a resistance fighter. And that's as important to me as writing any book is to dispute those things which I think are wrong in the world, including mm-hmm. many of the mental health um, services that are provided. And many things don't sit right with me. And so that that thread in my life of being a whistleblower or being being the little kid who points out that the emperor has no clo- no clothes, mm. that's always been important to me also. Well, and I think there's such an element of uh, of how to communicate. And I guess it's such a, a phrase these days of, you know, speak your truth and of being able to communicate that in such a way that it can be received by others. And I think that's a real gift. Yeah, and there's so much messaging of stuff, as we all know. Um, if you are somebody who has a, an advertising firm behind you who can create the best slogans, well, then you will have the best slogans. And we poor other people have to come around and try to figure out our slogans and our talking points. And and especially with re, with respect to what's called critical psychology or critical psychiatry or anti-psychiatry, with respect to those fields where we're Count, trying to counter both psychiatry and big pharma at the same time, mm. there isn't a slogan-sized thing to say. The things we have to say come with like commas and clauses and take like three whole sentences. And it's hard to get anybody to stay put to hear three whole sentences anymore. Yeah, it's a different so, world, isn't it? A different world. I mean, we have one nice slogan is that childhood isn't a disease. Mm. <laughs> There's that attempt to make childhood a disease with all of these fictitious diseases that are being promulgated, ADHD, et cetera, which mm. to my mind are labels and not genuine diagnoses, et cetera. So we can have some 
good talking points, but basically take, takes a lot of saying for somebody who's not inside any of these worlds to understand what's going on or how bad things are. Sure. Absolutely. And you've written so many different books. Some of the the bigger ones or more recent ones are The Coach's Way, Why Smart Teens Hurt, Redesign Your Mind, and The Power of Daily Practice. But one of the books that you shared that will be coming out uh, in 2024 is Parents Who Bully. And I find that is such an intriguing title. So in the 1950s, researchers, especially at the University of California, Berkeley, and the name associated with these folks is Adorno is the main name that people know, wrote on what they called the authoritarian personality. And they were trying to, they were, of course, in the World War II generation, they were trying to figure out not so much who Hitler was, Mm. but who Hitler's followers were. Why why did so many, why did virtually all Germans? A country. And of course, we're looking at that ourselves now as to why people are are following neo-fascist directions that are happening around us now. Well, that authoritarian personality literature got a lot of pushback from conservative elements. And so it faded away over time and very little subsequently was written about the idea of the authoritarian personality. There's still a literature, but it's not a robust literature. But that was a political literature. That was about why mm. follow tyrant. That wasn't about tyrants in the family. And so I staked out that area for myself. I found that interesting to wonder about how many parents or other family members were authoritarian by nature. I ran an authoritarian wound questionnaire out in cyberspace and had people explain to me what was going on in their childhood, terrible things. Sure. Um, And so that's an interest of mine, namely trying to help people understand the extent to which many parents are bullies and also what to do about that. And there aren't that many many things that work because that person is better at being a bully than you are at countering bullying. That's Mm. the way bullying works. Bullies are good at what they do. And typically, the only thing that works is getting far away, which is not really available to a child or a teen. That is, in in my research, that is the number, just about the only thing that really works is to get 4,000 miles away and not be in contact with the bully. That's about the only thing that works. Because trying to interact with that person, they win those interactions. They're better suited to fighting those conversations. And so that's what this forthcoming book is about. It's about underscoring or describing what an, what an everyday narcissistic authoritarian bully in the family looks like, what he or she does. And by the way, it's uh, gender equivalent. Mm. In my research, there is many bullying moms as bullying dads. I mean, that, that, that seems to be true. That seems to be a research finding, so to speak, that both, both genders bully. So the book is about, here's the description, here's what you can expect. Or if you see this, that's what's going on. That's A. And then B, what can you possibly do, including trying to find, if you're a young person, trying to find allies either in the family or not in the family, et cetera. In your experience in research, uh, is the tendency to have a bully, does that seem to be something that is passed down between generations? Is it a learned behavior? I would have no way of knowing, really. Um, I have a model of personality that I've written about that I think is interesting. The personality is made up of three parts. 
original personality, formed personality, and available personality. And I think it's a robust little model because it takes into account this thing I'm calling original personality, which psychology and psychiatry takes no interest in whatsoever. It sort of acts like everybody comes into the world similarly. Whereas anybody who's had kids or kittens or puppies or any creature knows yeah. that every creature is itself, comes into the world somehow itself. More easy to more easy to startle, less easy to startle, more this, less that. Every human so what's what's original and what's what's learned or what's formed? I don't know. It, it, there are many theories that modeling is the most important feature of personality development, comma, but I wonder. I do wonder about the extent to which original personality, which of course is made up, has got a genetic component. To what extent that's what's most important? I don't know if it's if it's if it's in the blood or if it's learned. Hmm. It's such an interesting thing to think about. You know, I personally have children, um, elementary, junior age, and bullying is 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 a big topic, and it's something that comes in so many different forms. I know for for my children you know, they think of the bully, or at least they had in their head is the, is an other child who has to physically hit them in order to be considered a bully. And they would keep a lot of the comments that other children would make to them yep. a secret out of shame, yep. you know, that they thought there was a piece in their brain thinking, what if this is true? Mm -hmm. And somehow by saying it out loud or telling an adult uh, or even a friend seemed to reaffirm it to them. That's so, right. As a parent, which I guess, <laughs> you know, a lot of people that listen to this are parents. So even though it's not directly about business, it is about life and it is about something that we all face. Yep. Yep. Um, and we can make lots of uh, inferences to bullies in the workplace. But, you know, how can I as a parent help my child in this area? And I'm totally yep. asking this selfishly. <laughs> sure. No, I mean, th there are lots of kinds of answers. One is to is to ask, well, one is to talk to your child. Of course, that's one so many parents are having fragmentary or, or passing in the dark conversations with their kids just because every kids are doing so many things. The parents are doing so many things. Yeah. The dinner table can be chaotic, not because anybody is mean, but just that it's chaotic and who gets the last, you know, fish stick or whatever. It's a, <laughs> a lot of stuff going on in any, any family dynamic. So it's hard to have a, a good conversation. So number one is having conversations. Number two is not being superficial. It is to ask what I'm called in, in the, co the coaching book, quality questions. They're everyday questions like, how's the weather? Mm. They don't get you anywhere. They're, they're lovely for normal conversation to, to pass the time of day. But you want to be asking quality questions of kids. And that's different from how is your day? What you're going to get from, your, from how is your day is fine. Fine. Yeah, exactly. It's fine or learn anything new? No, or yeah, whatever. Those are not questions that are going to get you anywhere. And this is not about being only asking quality questions if you're worried. It should be just part of your custom, part of your tradition to ask quality questions like, anything going on that you want to share with me? Anything going on that I should know about? Are you any troubles, any problems, any challenges? Just whatever, whatever language you end up you and your child end up deciding is the language that you want to use, have that be a daily, regular check-in kind of thing. It's not what parents are used to doing. And, and in some ways, they don't want to do it because they don't want to know what, 
everybody has that defensive part of themselves where they don't actually they don't want to be bothered by some news about a challenge. Mm. They, don't want to hear, they don't want to hear that something bad is going on because then they have to address it. They have to stop their life right. and look over here and address that. So this is it's an I think it's in some ways genuinely an act of courage to ask these kinds of quality questions because you're you're allowing things that you don't necessarily want to deal with to be put on the table. And I, I, that makes a lot of sense. Something that I do at home is I'll ask, you know, when they get off the bus, kind of what was the favorite part of your day? But I like to ask the more difficult questions before bed and not because I want it on their mind when they go to sleep, but it seems like they, at least for my children, they're in a more, you know, receptive space to Mm -hmm. talk about those vulnerable Mm -hmm. things. That's right something about being in the bed and the safety that that brings right. maybe. And and often part of it is also, of course, listening. If your child is saying that her good friend, Elena, is having a certain kind of problem, you could nod and, and commiserate, or you could one, you could go two or three steps further and wonder what Elena's problem is because that might be an opening to a conversation about what your own child is experiencing or feeling. So there are opportunities. We we hear things that could be opportunities or that we could let just go on by. If we take them as opportunities, we're going to have a much richer relationship with our child, a more more present one, which can be difficult. You know, mm. where we're, we're, we're hearing things that we must deal with, but but a richer one. I appreciate all of this so much. And I think for those of us that, you know, do have families, it's, it's very valuable information, but switching it back into business, how, how, or what have you seen or what have you come across and learned and, um, you know, or what would be a good book of yours that could help direct people around this kind of topic within the workplace? Because bullying doesn't stop at, you know, 12th grade or college. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure about the workplace. I have a book called Overcoming Your Difficult Family, which um, talks about more than bullying. It talks about all the difficult all the difficulties that arise in families. That's not a it's not a workplace book. Um, I may not have one that actually connects to the workplace, so I might I might pass on trying to aim somebody in that direction. Maybe a future book topic. <laughs> could could well be. All right. Well, then let's let's transition into your role as a creativity coach and, you know, how that came to be something within your life. What does that what does it mean to be a creativity coach? Well, let me start all the way back, far back. I thought I was a math and science boy back in back in Brooklyn growing up. That's what I thought I would do. I went to a math and science high school, Stuyvesant, Manhattan. Thought I'd be a physicist or something. And then graduated early from high school and started college way too early and, and nothing about college interested me, but it took them a full year and a half to throw me out. <laughs> not attending classes, they should have noticed sooner. <laughs> so I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew it wasn't math and science any longer. So I, I enlisted when I was 18. And when I got out, I did that thing which people do when they have no idea what they're doing. I got a degree in philosophy. <laughs> one of those useful things to do. I still had no idea what I was doing, but about at the age of 24, I started writing my first book. And I think I was always meant to write. I, I guess, had I known, I would have said that out loud, but I 
couldn't quite say it out loud, but as soon as I was writing my first book, I knew that that's what I was doing. So I did that. I actually lived as a ghostwriter, which was unusual to be able to live by writing. In my 20s, I was able to do that. But at some point, we had young kids, and it wasn't quite authentic or acting in good faith or any of those existential terms to continue writing when it wasn't bringing in enough money. So I retooled and became a, a therapist next, uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. Worked exclusively with artist couples, which is hard work to have two artists in the room when each wants the other one to have the day job and each mm. wants permission to get the work done and et cetera. It's there are lots of difficulties in artist couples, to say the least. But I didn't think I was doing therapy. That is, I didn't think I was diagnosing and treating mental disorders, which is the therapy mandate. That's the mental disorder mandate that if you're licensed, that's what you're supposedly doing, diagnosing and treating mental disorders. I thought these were just problems in living. And so very quickly, I stopped wanting to do therapy and I started doing something I called creativity consulting. Coaching wasn't a thing yet at all. This is 35 years ago. And the word coaching was only associated with sports. Right. But then when life coaching began to slightly be a thing, I kind of invented the the territory of creativity coaching and made that segue from therapy to consulting to coaching way back then. And for me, what creativity coaching is about is dealing with everything that a creative person might face. And that's stuff within her own personality, because mm -hmm. there is a creative personality, I do believe. In one of my books, I've researched 75 traits of the creative personality, lots of stuff, including a certain kind of stubbornness and this and that, all kinds of interesting traits that come together into a certain personality. So it's dealing with that personality. It's dealing with the difficulties in the work. That is, I have no, I have no smiley-faced belief that it's easier to write a novel or a symphony or what have you. <laughs> That's all real work, and it's way easier to turn on the TV than to do that work. So as a creativity coach, I'm dealing all the time with people who consciously or unconsciously would rather do an easier thing than face the work. Mm. So there's that. There's the the hardness of the, the essential and necessary hardness of the work. And then there's the moving the work into the world and making money and, and the business side of it all. So there's the personality part, and there's the work part, and there's the in-the-world part. And a creativity coach, from my point of view, deals with all of that and has to be psychologically minded, can't be afraid of, quote, stepping into a therapist's territory. Sure. You can't deal with human beings without being psychologically minded, including being interested if somebody's suffering from a case of the blues or is very anxious. Or we, Everybody has to have their common sense ways of dealing with despair or anxiety, separate from needing therapy or needing chemicals. Hmm. Well, and I... You know, I love the idea too of that, you know, you've written so many books and at some point, did you ever come up against with the, the, the fear that maybe you didn't have anything else to write about, about, or didn't have more to say? N not even slightly. <laughs> no, not even slightly. I probably have, uh, I have books to the end of time. You show me infinity and I'll show you infinity plus one books. <laughs> <laughs> no, things interest me. And to my mind, I'm always surprised by the things that have not been explored. That always, I'm always curious about, well, that whole area, for instance, just to give one simple example, lots of books on addiction, but there hadn't been 
a book on addiction specifically for creative folks. And creative folks have their own special needs in recovery. So I did that book with an addiction specialist called Creative Recovery. Different things interest me. And one of my mottos is sooner rather than later. Mm. That is, if something interests me, I'd rather tackle it now rather than imagine that I get to do it two years from now. And also, I'd rather tackle it more quickly than more slowly. One of my whatever models in mind is the Belgian novel novelist Simonon, who wrote the McGray Mystery Series and, and 500 other psychological novels. He would write each one of his books in three weeks' time. Oh, wow. I took that in way back when, not that that, that not as a should, not that everybody should write a book in three weeks' time, but just that but that just was that you, could, you could. Just that that was possible. And yeah. I'd known that from my own experience, because as a ghostwriter, you could give me any kind of subject, how to buy a, how to buy an oriental rug or how to make milkshakes in your blender, any subject, and I could write you a book on it in 30 days flat. Mm. So I always knew that was possible, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, because I don't, <laughs> I don't have ADHD. But my attention span for any given subject is limited. There's only so much time I want to investigate something before moving on to the next thing that interests me. So that's a long answer to the to the the question of do I ever have writer's block or anything like that? No. I, every once in a while between books, I don't know what the next book is. That's different from writer's mm. block. That's just that in my language, the next book isn't available yet. And I have periods where the next book isn't available. And my metaphor for that is to walk around the lake, just to just to be open to the next book arriving. And it will arrive within 24 hours or 36 hours or two days or whatever. Yeah. That's such a fascinating way to look at it. And I think there's also, you know, part of the the culture and in our subconscious that writing a book must be hard. You know, there's that mental image of the person becoming a hermit and locking themselves away from the world and then toiling over their books. So it's almost like this preconceived notion that maybe prevents people from even starting. Yeah. And I have to demand of clients that they, that they show up and not attached outcomes, that they don't get hooked on certain ideas, like the idea of progress, making progress on a given day, you may have to take out 500 words rather than put in 500 words. And that doesn't particularly feel like progress, but it's process that what's important, not progress. It's the creative process is a real thing. It comes with mistakes and messes, comes with failures. One book may work. The next book may not be good at all. It, we need a mature attitude about that. If you look at any creative person, how many have boxed 200 cantatas are wonderful, 10, 20, and then 180 are ordinary? Hmm. How many of Bob Dylan songs are wonderful, 20 out of 400? It's yeah. every. Pundits who claim to know will tell you that Beethoven's first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth symphonies are better than his second, fourth, sixth, and eighth. But you can't do one without the other. You can't skip the things that don't work. And would-be creative people are sitting there waiting to skip the things that don't work. They're just hoping, mm -hmm. hoping they can get over that without actually doing the thing that didn't work. But you have to do the thing that doesn't work to get to the thing that does work. So it, 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 you can tell that I have a little speech for clients about <laughs> the necessity of embracing the realities of not smiley face process like, oh, and we wait for inspiration. No. By the way, I have my, one of my favorite quotes is Tchaikovsky's line of, I'm inspired every fifth day, but I only get my fifth day if I show up the other four. Mm. 
And I think that's the truth about processes. There is such a thing as inspiration, but it's not going to come to you if you're not working. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really big to talk about manifestation in, in certain circles and um, <laughs> of you just sit around and, you know, vision yep. it, but they miss that crucial piece of action. That's right. And I don't believe in most of their outcomes. I don't think the work that comes out of that is particularly uh, deep or wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that could be a whole separate issue to uh, episode to go through that with you. <laughs> Good. Um, so one thing, you know, I come from a background of engineering and it's a very common belief um, held by a lot of people that are good at math and science, which I love that that's where you started thinking you would be a yes. physicist, um, is that they're not creative. You know, there's a lot of people, particularly if you break it into left brain, right brain, that right brain people are creative and left brain people are are logical and not creativity and do not have a lot of creativity. What is your insight into that? And, and what have you seen? Is, is that a true statement or is there the ability for creativity in all, in all creatures? It's really complicated. Um, let me say a variety of things. Um, during Roosevelt's time as president, during the time of the WPA after the depression, a lot of money was thrown at interesting studies that had never been replicated. Nobody's tried them again. And one of the things they did back then was to ask classroom teachers, who are the smart kids in your class? Who are the creative kids in your class? Are they the same kids? And how do they differ? Hmm. Which is really interesting. Very interesting. You kind, you kind of think, oh, smart, creative, go to get, it's like an equal sign. That, no. The teachers were very clear that here are the smart but not creative kids. Here are the creative but nece not necessarily brilliant kids. And here's how they're different. The smart kids need to know what's going to be on the next kit, next test. The creative kids don't care. The smart kids want to know what's the profession that makes the most money. Smart kids don't care. There are two, two standard deviations above the mean around these things, around rebelliousness and what have you. So, so there's, a, there's a thread of conformity and conventionality, whether in smart people or not smart people, that keeps them from being creative. Mm. Where that comes from, I couldn't say, but it's there. It, it's like it's a roadblock or it's an imposition of some worldview where they don't dare be creative because they have to make it or they need a certain kind of path laid out for them that's sensible or straightforward or some kind of language there. That's that's A. B, as you know, school robs us of our imagination pretty well over time and does a pretty good job of it. It takes a rebellious, anti-authority kid to retain imagination. And even imaginative kids lose their imagination over time. The more they're told to draw inside the lines and here's what you need for the test, and the more they want to be a good student and all of that. So it's hard to know, when I see a person, it's hard to know if they're creative, if they've lost their imagination. Part of the work is reclaiming imagination. And then once once that's back, then you get to know if that's a creative person or not. But if that person is is fending off imagine any four-year-old ask him to put a salmon and a skyscraper together and they'll make you an interesting thing. <laughs> At the age of seven or nine, they go, I can't, I can't know. They gotta they Those don't go together. Yeah. Salmon or skyscrapers can't do that. 
and that that gets worse and worse as we as you get your PhD in the narrowest possible subject imaginable. You get to learn about one worm really well, <laughs> or something, and and you don't have that thing that the Greeks could have, namely be a natural philosopher, N know a little bit about everything, and and mm -hmm. have broad brush, and be interested in all of life. We don't get to do that. We don't have that mechanism or apparatus allowable for us. So that's that's by way of saying. There are probably lots of, Otto Ronk had a name for this person, the artist Monquet, that is a would-be artist who doesn't yet have the, has not found the way to use his or her freedom to manifest his or her creativity. Mm. So that's part of the deep work of creativity coaching is if someone says to me, and I'll get this a lot from a very disappointed client, disappointed in herself, she'll say, I've got an MFA in poetry. I've read 4 billion poems. I know everything there is to know about a poem. How is it that I have no ideas for poems? Mm. How can that, it, that's, it doesn't make sense. And my instant response is, A, we have to look at where you lost your imagination and B, your mind is probably too noisy, probably full of stuff, thoughts that aren't serving you. And so we'll do some, simple, straightforward cognitive work on, let's from this day forward, think only thoughts that serve you. And that switch can be made rather easily if you get the wording correct, because this is not about thoughts that are true or false. People get hung up on the idea that if you have a true thought, you should countenance it. Well, it's true. For example, what if you have the thought, wow, there are a lot of writers out there. That's a true thought, but you better not be thinking that. Mm. You better reject, you better fight back that thought by saying, not it's not true, because it's true, but by saying it's not serving me to, to notice that there are that there, there are eight million books on Amazon. That does not serve me to notice. That doesn't help me write my book. So once a client can begin to only think thoughts that serve her, that gives her the opportunity to get quieter, less monkey mind, less neurons grabbed by lots of tiny thoughts and something's going to percolate that percolate up then into that what feels like emptiness or silence which yeah. feels weird to a lot of people people don't necessarily like that feeling of silence or emptiness that's why so many meditators have trouble meditating to begin with or forever have trouble yeah. they can't they don't really it's not tolerable <laughs> silence is not really tolerable but so that's part of the, I'm a little bit all over the map there, but that's part of the work of answering your question, who's creative. It's really hard to know because there are so many different ways in which a contemporary person is made not creative. Mm. I could honestly talk to you forever. This is really fascinating. I appreciate you sharing just the tiniest tip of the iceberg. Like we, I feel like we're like a snowflake on top of an iceberg of all that you have. <laughs> that was not share. a mixed metaphor. That was good. The metaphors hung together. <laughs> I got, I got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to reach into that creative part of my brain. Um, but what is the best way for someone who wants to learn more or reach out or work with you? Um, what does that process look like for that person? Just visit my site, ericmazel.com is, is the is the best way. Um, I have things coming up. I have an Eric Maisel community that's forming in October, October, and I think that's going to be interesting because it has that working alone together components that people are really needing. So we'll we'll gather and everybody will do their own work together, and that'll be interesting. So that's you can find out about that at my site. 
And also I have a new big robust creativity coach certificate and diploma program that launched recently with a big coaching outfit called Noble Manhattan, which is a European-based coaching outfit. Um, and we've put together a really interesting um, coaching program. So I'm doing a ton of stuff and uh, coming to my site is the way to know, ericmazel.com. And I will make sure to have that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on here and sharing with us. I really appreciate it. It's been great fun and uh, do it anytime. (laughs) And for the listeners, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe and share it with your network. If there's anything that you're curious about, a topic, an industry that you want to learn more about, please reach out and I'd be happy to find the perfect guest. Until next time, everyone, have a good day.